You hear this in workplaces all the time. I didn't want to speak up because I didn't want to sound dumb. I think the difference between that eight-year-old kid who asks why, 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 and the rest of us is we get drilled into our head that we might sound stupid or that it's inappropriate or that we might be dominating a conversation, which you can do and you don't want to do that. There are a whole host of reasons that adults start to pull back. You don't want to be dominating a conversation and just sort of pirating a conversation. You do want to have that sense of curiosity that you can give expression to and be doing it in a way that as you do it, you learn. You really learn about a situation, learn about someone's personal trajectory, learn to be empathetic. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. All right, welcome to Chris White Outliving It. Today, I'm super excited to have Frank Cessna, who has become a friend. He and I are both Middlebury, members of the Middlebury alumni, and we met there. We were not there at the same time, but I think that the people at the admissions office seem to do a really good job of somehow making sure that we can all pair up afterwards and have, have great friendships. So I'm thankful to Middlebury for giving us this opportunity to have a friendship Frank was a, a, what, a correspondent and anchor, a bureau chief at CNN, the uh, former director of the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University, is a current professor, and also is going to be the director of strategic initiatives when he returns after a sabbatical. Frank, Welcome. Thank you very much for joining Living It. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. I look forward to the conversation and yes to Middlebury and the stars that align and cross to, to make great friendships happen. It really is. I think that they are spectacular. I, I don't know how many friends I have who were not on campus when I was on campus. And I think I just have to thank the, the admissions office. But we're going to start, okay, it's always tough to frame this when you're going backwards. <laughs> With, with your book, Ask More, which you wrote in, or was published in 2017, but right. to me seems as timely, if not more timely, it's about asking questions. Where did you learn how to ask questions? I'm not sure I ever learned. And it's pro probably why I wrote the book because I just sort of stumbled into it. I'm a naturally curious person. I'm fascinated by people. I'm fascinated by very diverse people, people who come from all different walks of life. I think it may have been partly because I have a sister with Down syndrome. And so I was exposed to people in the disability community from the time I was a kid. My mother was very engaged in that community in her work. And so trying, you know, understanding that even people who couldn't speak had a story to tell. Mm. And that um, we need to really listen carefully because sometimes what we hear is not even what is said. Uh, but then through my career in journalism and doing all the interviewing I did at CNN and when I got to the university, I realized, you know, I never took a course on this. I never learned how to ask questions, even the producers who produced my shows, I would say, let's sit down and pull it apart. And we never really did. And so I did. And then I, and I put a class together and, and I thought, well, you know, 14 weeks of a class when I put a syllabus together, that's kind of like chapters in a book. I wonder if there's something here. And 
sure enough, the students were really interested. They, they, they really learned a lot. And I could see both in their process and in thinking back to my own, and then just looking around journalism and all the people I knew who interviewed, that we don't really think about this. It's kind of like breathing. You just do it or you don't do it. You know, we have debate clubs on campus and in school. We have public speaking courses, but we don't have question courses and we don't have listening courses uh, because you can't ask without listening. So that's where the book came from. It is interesting because you're talking about you developed a course at the college level, at the university level, but shouldn't this be something that should be taught way back in first grade, in second grade? Well, yes and no, because actually, if you think about it, who are the very best questioners on the planet? <laughs> it's some little kid who says, why did you do that? And then what happens? And just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and asks and asks and asks. And in fact, in some strange ways, we actually iron out of people that persistent questioning. We tell people they're a nuisance or we tell them to let somebody else speak or whatever it is we do, rather than fully celebrating that curiosity and harnessing it um, to really go and be creative. So yes, I do think we could teach it earlier, but um, certainly at the high school level and the college level and beyond, <laughs> taking some time to think about um, why do we ask? How do we ask? For what reason do we ask? I talk a lot about outcomes. What do we want out of this? Um, and as I said in the book in 2017, and it feels more relevant now than ever, in our national discourse, in our cultural life, wouldn't we be better served by more question marks than exclamation points? It's yes. And, and I, I agree with you 100%. We're, we get really good at talking right? And I will tell you what I think you should know, as opposed to bridging that gap. And I think that part of, I mean, is this, is this part of what we're seeing in, in the divide in our country, the idea of trying to, trying to ask questions, trying to get to know somebody, as opposed to, you know, chanting our own, our own, uh, our own mantra, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we live in an assertion culture, sort of a, a culture of, of argumentation and assertion, and sometimes it's not very nice. Some of this has been accelerated, amplified by social media. You know, most of social media are people tweeting a declaration. You know, it's, it's, it's a statement of, of fact or alternative fact, but it's a statement. Uh, and what I'm saying is that some of the most rewarding experiences we can have. And there are whole professions that are dedicated to this, not just journalism. Sure. Um, are, you know, some of those most rewarding experiences come out of asking the questions. That's what therapists do. That's what cops and detectives do in, 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 in their investigation. It's what doctors do. Um, and it's certainly what good journalists should do. Ask, learn, listen ask again with deliberateness, with care. Um, and, and as I say, with an outcome, I talk about outcomes a lot. What do I mean by that? Um, you know, we can be having a conversation. You can be asking me questions or vice versa. 
to evoke just simple information. You know, how many people were in the building when it burned down? Um, to evoke, to, to get at explanation or exploration. Tell me about yourself. Well, you know, to, to generate a, um, a, a real sort of empathetic um, response. Uh, to really learn about someone else, to challenge someone else. What is, you know, cross-examination. <laughs> Your witness, right, is to grill them. So there are, there are you know, and from those different experiences, we want different outcomes. We want different results. And being thoughtful about that, whether we're talking to our teenager who just came home at three o'clock in the morning and wasn't supposed to, <laughs> or, our, or our boss who has just asked us to do something, but we're not sure we understand it, or we're not even sure it's, uh, an ethical thing to do? What, how do we ask about those things and toward what end? One of, the, one of the parts of the book that I found really interesting was the idea of the bridging questions. Trying to bridge to someone who might have a different opinion or this might well be the boss that you're talking about or the teenager that you're talking about and how, how to bridge and how to, how, to, how to allow somebody to be in a position where they can answer the question, where they, where they don't feel threatened. And those bridging questions, and I couldn't help but think that, I mean, you've talked to, you know, heads of state, I mean, you're uh, Sadat, people like this who are, who are challenging, challenging interviews, but I thought of something that might've been more difficult. I was imagining like the eighth grade dance yeah, keep going. <laughs> and, you know, and the, and the hormones are running wild and puberty and boys are discovering girls and girls are discovering boys, but they're on opposite sides of the gym or whatever it is. I mean, obviously with COVID, I'm talking about this dance and the hypothetical, but how does, how is, how does the question, how does one person bridge the gap to the other person in this seemingly charged kind of environment, which seems like a great time to know how to ask a question. Well, I think about your eighth grade dance floor and the, the unpredictability and the weirdness of the hormones raging and might compare it to the weirdness of the COVID debate that we've had or vaccines or all the rest. You know, it seems like everybody is in this kind of strange, slightly frenzied state um, and whether whatever age they're at. And there are certain similarities. When we ask someone, you know, what are you going to do with the dance today? Or how will you react to, to someone? Or we ask someone, why are you concerned about the vaccine? What makes you hesitant? What gives you pause? We invite them um, to speak, to, to, to share what they're feeling or fearing. We signal to them that we're going to listen. Because we've asked a question, if we keep our mouths shut long enough, we'll actually hear something in response we convey to them that their point of view, and this may be subliminal, but that their point of view has value. So I've asked you a question, I, I'm, I'm curious, I'm interested, tell me what you think about fill in the blank. And, and we create a conversation where before it might've been a monologue. I mean, if we could change a, a period to a question mark, think about that eighth floor dance question. Um, now that one's a little bit more perilous because as you point out, the hormones that are raging do not bode well for, for, for somebody in eighth grade to say whatever they want or are thinking to their mom or their dad. 
That's probably not going to happen in some cases. But, but, but even with that, and actually that's, that sort of underscores the point. If, if, you, if you ask thoughtfully and sensitively enough or gently enough when it's required, uh, people will surprise you when they, by, by what they will say. And they will surprise you if you stay silent and let them speak, even if there's a gap, even if there's a silence in their response. So what I think you can do on that, with that eighth grade or, you know, dance or with anything else is with patience and, 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 and care, create a conversation where you're, where the conversation is being driven by what you ask, not by what you say. I, I, I have a, I was just one, one point to, to kind of illustrate this. I have an assignment I give my students on this one. Mm-hmm. And I suggest that they sit down with someone they know pretty well for a little interview, kind of like StoryCorps, for those who know StoryCorps. And for 20 minutes, just inquire and ask them questions about something, a thread of their lives, whatever. But with the knowledge that there are two words they cannot utter during that entire 20 minutes. What do you think? Any guesses to what those two words would be? Any guesses? I, I feel like I should get the, get this correct. I didn't realize I was going to have to answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not being fair. It's not very nice. I'm not sure, but, uh, but I'm right. sure it's going to be obvious once you say it. The, the two words that I say you may not utter in that 20 minutes when you're asking somebody those questions, I or me. Uh, yes that there will be no reference to yourself whatsoever because people do this without even realizing it. Um, I was having a conversation today and was telling somebody that um, I recently had the, you know, the COVID vaccine. And um, they said instantly, well, I did the other day. You know, I, I, I had it too. Fair enough. But maybe before telling me that they had had it, it would have been interesting for them to say, did you have any reaction to it? How did you do? Any soreness in your arm? Uh, does it, does it, how do you feel about going out to a restaurant now? Is it Show that interest in the other person and really focus on that. Stay with it. Take some practice. We all want to talk about ourselves. It takes a lot of practice and, it ta- and there's a bit of fear too, isn't there? with questions in that you talk about that little kid, right? And the little kid is just firing question after question. Why, 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 why is the sky blue? Why, you know, this and that. And, and in some ways that's something to be celebrated, but we also quickly learn what's a stupid question, which seems to return to the eighth grade dance as well, where you're thinking, I really hope that she would want to dance with me and that's really all I'm hoping, but I'm worried that I'm going to say something and she's going to say, you're stupid. Exactly, exactly. How do we you get over this fear? You hear this in workplaces all the time. Uh, I didn't want to speak up because I didn't want to sound dumb. Or uh, I didn't want to speak up because, um, you know, so-and-so doesn't like me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the difference between that eight-year-old kid who asks why, 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 why? And the rest of us is we get drilled into our head that we might sound stupid or that 
it's inappropriate or that we might be dominating a conversation, which you can do and you don't want to do that. Um, there are a, a whole host of reasons that, that adults start to pull back. And, uh, you know, while you don't want to be dominating a conversation and just sort of pirating a conversation, you do want to have that sense of curiosity that you can give expression to, and uh, and 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 be doing it in a way that, as you do it, you learn. You really learn about a situation, learn about someone's personal trajectory, learn to be empathetic. So, can the can the curiosity then trump the 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 you know the, the potentially dumb question the potentially ignorant question but it's coming from a curious place does that make it okay yes i i you know in the book I, and i really believe this and i've seen this in so many situations you know people say there's no such thing as a stupid question well that's actually not true there there are stupid questions but the stupid what i what the way i define a stupid question chris is um it's a stupid, a stupid question or a bad question is one that is deliberately malicious, mm -hmm. that tries to show someone up or tries to show someone yourself off. I'm gonna ask this and everybody's gonna think I'm so brilliant because I'm gonna take three minutes for the setup. <laughs> and I'm in that three minutes, I'm gonna show all the things I know before I ask you. And what time is the train leaving? <laughs> And people do it all the time. Um, I, I, you know, a, a, a dumb question is also a question where um, it is reasonable to expect that you have done your homework to have a certain basic understanding of something and you haven't done that, but you ask anyway, especially in a public place, in a workplace or something like that, in a board meeting, you name it, we've all been there. And everybody looks at one another and they wanna roll their eyes and go, did this guy like read the packet? Right, and so at a point where you're asking an, a, a sort of an ignorant uh, question, even if it's a legitimate question, if you if there was a certain amount of work that you were supposed to do going into it, and you just didn't do it, you're now kind of wasting other people's time if you're asking what should be a question of the obvious. And then there's the willfully ignorant question, um, where 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 people will sort of say, you know, they think they're brilliant, they ask a question of the room, they hijack a conversation by doing it, or at least steer it down another track for, for, for good measure. But it's being driven by the fact that they didn't do their basic homework. And now you're wasting people's time. Yes, and none of us want to do that. And we've probably all done it at one I know I've done it but at one point I've done it too and and that's why I, that's why I sort of say a willfully ignorant gesture like that you know that you that you do, you know people will brag oh yeah I didn't read it until we came to the way and then they'll ask a question it's like really <laughs> you did this to a certain extent in the book where you scripted some questions is that something that's helpful for, for a lot of people? It seems like for a lot of us, it seems like it's, it's sometimes a challenge to come up with a question. It doesn't seem like it should be, but, but the idea of scripting, scripting questions and, and, and are there other resources in some ways that where we can go to, to find more questions, to get us started as primers? 
there, there are always more places to go for more questions because there's more information out there and it's so accessible online. So, and, and the information will drive your question. So when I'm, when I'm thinking, you know, if I were interviewing um, secretary of state, right. I'm going to study what the secretary of state has done and said over the past two weeks and then maybe a longer look back six months, and then maybe a longer look back six years. Because it might be that six years ago, she predicted today and got it completely wrong. Or she predicted today down to the T and then offered a prescription around it. Well, you'd wanna ask about that. But six years ago, you wrote about X, Y, or Z. And you said that if people were in a position today, like I am in my job to make change, they would do X or Y. Well. That feels strange to me. Um, that's an interesting way to frame a question, which is framing it without using a question. But um, yeah, there, there are a number of ways to come at this. As, as a correspondent, you, you said that you, you would look, you would do your research, which, which obviously is something that's really important. How would you how would you go and and craft your questions? Because it seems like in some ways there are there are tendencies to right to, you know, we sort of see the courtroom lawyer kind of thing and are reminded this is the way to ask a question, right? That you need to you need to know the answer to the question before you ask the question. Right. But as a correspondent, you're you're telling you're telling a story. So in some ways, is the the telling the story and directing that story by knowing the answer a, a way to achieve telling the story? But then also the asking the question with the idea of the curiosity of I'm not sure exactly where you're going to go with this, but I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. Were you, were, when you approached questioning, were you allowed to approach questioning in that way? And, and how did you do it? How did you achieve it? <laughs> that was part of the problem. The part of, part of the problem is I was allowed to do the questioning however I wanted. And so I could go down any one of these rat holes. Uh, and that's why I wrote the book. I mean, let's think about what your outcome is, what you want your outcome to be. If I'm doing an interview on camera with somebody and I'm gonna have an audience of hundreds of thousands or millions of people watching, what do I want to do? Do I want to get from this person? Let's say this person is the, is, is, is the head of NASA. Right. Do I want detailed information on what the Perseverance is doing on Mars and how long it'll last and what we're actually going to learn from it? Or, or do I want to make this a personal interview about one person who's done really well in life and is now leading NASA and how did they get out of the, the conflict of their childhood or whatever it is? I, I'm making it up. But the point is, is that as I look at people, people are, every, everybody's their own storybook. Mm -hmm. We all have our chapters. And if I take the Chris Waddell storybook down off my shelf, I can't read it all at once. I can read one chapter at a time. Similarly with interviewing or asking, I can do one area, one chapter at a time. What matters to you? That's a whole conversation unto itself. Um, how do you deal with adversity? Whole chapter by itself. 
um, what are you doing with this show? And why are you, why do you believe in media to be a power of, for good? Three chapters all by themselves. Right. <laughs> but no, seriously, I mean, but, but, you know, and if we think of it that way, if I go into an interview very thoughtful and deliberately, and if people think of it in that way, it hones their questions down. It helps define for them in their brains why they are listening and what they're listening for. Um, and it, it actually outlines a narrative, a person's narrative. It, it is, it is. And sometimes you don't know exactly where that narrative is going. And it's interesting, you were talking about the idea of, of the audience as well, right? So you have, you have to consider the audience. Why am I doing this? But taking audience one step further, who is, who is your audience? And what I'm talking about, I think, in this sense is like you hear about, the, how, about this from authors who are thinking, well, well, who's, who's my audience? You know, and you can imagine oh, my audience is the world, right? But, but this is the person, you know, and I guess in some ways it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of getting to that creative process of, of who's the audience? You know, am I, am I writing for, am I writing like even, even like, like Stephen King in some ways, I think he was talking about like, like it, when his wife reads it and she laughs, he thinks, okay, this is good. Like I've, I've done something that's good. She enjoys it. And we can't understand the amorphous audience, but to think like, do you have a, a personal audience that you think this is the person that I'm considering my audience. And if this person, if, I, if I'm appealing to this person, that then other people will enjoy it as well. It'll be meaningful. I think it really depends. Um, you know, in some cases, your audience is going to go first. In other cases, you know, what you're doing is so universal, it doesn't have anything to do whatsoever with the audience that you're going to ask the questions you're going to ask because they're the ever-present questions that, 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 that are screaming to be asked or logical to be asked or 27 people have clamored to try to ask them. Um, I mean, I think that the, the first thing you always ask yourself in any media experience, if you're the producer of that media and you want it to succeed, which means you want a lot of viewers yeah. or listeners or whatever it's going to be, the first question you ask is of yourself and it's who is my audience? Who is my audience? Is my audience, you know, and they can do tremendous research with these news organizations and, and media companies now. NPR can say they've got, you know, 47% of the viewership under 32. Well, that's, there's some kind of baby bus going on there. Who knows what that's all about? But um, it's, a, it's an invitation to advertise if you know it, right? So there's a direct connection in the business community. And I think that's what more of us need to do is is try to assess that what do you what you know what's the role of young people and and, and all of that um it's so much bigger than it's been in the past that's that's for sure hmm. now what's how about on the idea of on the idea of conscience i mean you're talking to a you, you know you have an employer so you have a boss to whom you have to answer uh, but but at the same time do you have a personal conscience when you're when you're asking questions, when you're when you're conversing with with a guest, yeah. Um, you know, 
the, the most important thing, there are several most important things. One, know your audience. Two, bring genuine curiosity to a discussion. Three, know your guest, just as you say. Knowing the guest, and that doesn't mean you're gonna have everything right there, but knowing what to be listening for, what buttons to push, what buttons not to push, where someone has been very forthcoming in the past, they're very comfortable talking about something, where they've only said three words when you know, being shoved into the jailhouse door. <laughs> um, it, it really drives the nature of a conversation. Um, and that's what I like to call interviews, they're conversations. And they're conversations to evoke a history, an, an arc, a story, if you will, um, if done right. So I, I, I think that knowing who that person is, where they fit into the timeline um, and sort of the approval rating of the family structure, whatever that is, because you wanna know that too. Someone's gonna to be completely more on edge if they're sitting, I'm, you know, if I'm the, I'm the oldest son of three kids and my mother has roped you into sitting for an interview and you don't really like my mother very much, uh, that's probably not going to be a happy outcome. <laughs> right. But it's a, it's a challenge, isn't it, to try to get the answer that you're looking for, you know, because I think that in some ways you have you have a couple of different things going on. It's I'm, I'm acutely aware of saying I right now for some reason. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but but okay. you but but you have exactly I'm still working. I'm, I haven't quite taken the graduate degree yet, uh, but. But to, to look at, at trying to get that story, trying to craft the story, trying to get to the point that will be the most salient point and, and trying to respect your guests, but also trying to, trying to respect the medium and, and the humanity of the whole thing. I mean, that's, that's gotta be a big challenge, right? It's a big challenge, um, but it's made a little easier by the fact that generally speaking, when you go into an interview with somebody, um, you have a pretty good idea of what you want to get out of it and how much the audience already knows this person. So if the audience does, doesn't know them at all, they're a good Samaritan, they're cleaning up yards, they're delivering meals on wheels, they're doing all these things, and they're just an amazing human being. And by the way, they're 98 and doing all this. Um, you know, you certainly can start that interview with, uh, you know, you're, you know, you can start it with the fact that they're 98. You can start it with the fact that they're 88. You can start it with the fact that they've been delivering food to the needy, presumably. Um, and, and any of those can be a point of departure, but all of them, all of them get to something personal. And so it allows that person to, to reflect on their own humanity and offer an answer in the first person singular. And from there, you can you know, weave a life or you can weave a life and events as they go through it. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a deliciously difficult creative problem. But I would imagine that that was the challenge that was that was so intriguing for you. Yes, that was the challenge, and that and the challenge, you know, was that there are not a lot of books written about this stuff. People kind of assume that people, you know, know how to ask questions, and they don't. You kind of pick it up along the way, I would assume. Yeah, and some people are more proactive than others, and some are better listeners than others, and some are better followers up than others. So it, it does take all kinds. Does it take a, a perspective? I, this, this might be a bit, a bit too far, but I was trying to draw an analogy. I read a book on learning how to draw, 
And the thesis was that it wasn't physical dexterity. It was actually the way that we see things. Mm. And, and, and can we draw that analogy to asking a question that it's how, that it's how we see the other people, that it's how we hear the other people that allows us to ask a meaningful question. I, I think to a very large extent, and this is part of the problem, but, the, but uh, there's also promise here because I do think that people are more connected at different levels now than ever been, than they've ever been before. And, there's, and that drives a certain genuine curiosity. So maybe, you know, 16 years from now, when you walk your next imaginative kid down the aisle, um, you're, you're, you might be apt to pay the screen monitor plus 16 inches for three years or something like that. Um, and maybe that's a way to explore a little bit more. For you, did you know that this is what you wanted to do? That, that but, you wanted but, to be in a career of of asking questions that you wanted to be a journalist and a correspondent? No, 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 no. I'm not the poster child. I didn't <laughs> know that. I mean, when I look back now, it's logical, completely logical. But I didn't, I never had, you know, I, I, I never took the, the, what is it? The something Biggs test or whatever it is. The, the, uh, the Myers, Myers Biggs. Myers Briggs. Briggs. Yeah. Briggs. I never did that when I was younger. I just sort of thought, well, I'll figure this out, you know. And, but as I look back on it, I was the, I did my high school newspaper. I did my, my college radio station up in Middlebury. I did, I, I worked downtown. So I, I was in the media of one form or another from way early on, but I didn't aspire to be a journalist. I didn't start off being a journalist. I never went to journalism school, um, but I did a lot of other things that as I look back on it now, laid the groundwork for this. And so that when I did do it, when I did launch into it, and this is just the kind of person I am, I threw myself at it and I, I, I lived it. And, um, you know, it led to a, um, an interesting career, but I can't say that I had it plotted out on a map, let alone a 3D map, long before I actually did it. Was, was there a moment when you realized Hey, this is actually what I do. This is my profession, and I'm going to throw myself into it. Or, or did that kind of creep up on you as well? Probably at CNN, you know, because I'd gone from a little radio station in Vermont to a, um, a internship. I only stayed at for a few months at the Voice of America to the Associated Press back in London. And I think when you know London would have been the first big reporting job. But it was when I came back to the to the U.S. and they put me in the White House at 27 years old and said, oh, here, go figure out how to cover the White House. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I just done? And I saw these, you know, big network names around me, mostly acting like children, but never mind that. Um, and I thought, wow, I don't know anything. I have no business being here. But I just buckled down and. I, you learn through experience, if nothing else, you know, after you've done the budget cycle once, you do it a second time, and it's easier. And that's sort of the way it went. And was it, was it a love for what you were doing? Or was it, I, I need to keep this job and I don't want to tell my bosses that they were wrong in hiring me? No, it was it was a love of what I was doing. I mean, in, in all the places I've been, as 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 challenging as the as the workplace has been at times, I've always been into the work. 
I mean, I, I, this is a great job. Somebody pays you to go to the front of the line when the president speaks or when there's a big inaugural or in the middle of the hurricane or, you know, they, they pay you to be the climate correspondent and to go up in a, in, a, in, a, in a hurricane tracker. Well, how many people get to do that? None. So, you know, um, you, you, I've worked with what I've had. I'm very grateful for it. Um, what was that first day like at the, as a White House reporter? Oh, it was, oh my God, what have I done? My first day as a White House reporter, I had just come back from overseas. I'd been in London for two plus years and I, I'd never covered American politics in a big way or the White House in any way. I didn't have a press credential anywhere, anywhere. Uh, certainly after the White House, they gave, and they gave me one. And I was like, now I can go into the White House and now does that turn me, I'm a, you know, I would say Frank Sesno, CNN, the White House. That was my SIG out. I go, now if I put Frank Sesno in the White House in the same, does that suggest I'm an expert of everything that goes on in the building? Because I got a lot of work to do, if that's the case. So, you know, you, I tried to be careful. I tried not to get over my skis with the information that I was imparting or to get involved. I didn't think it would matter three years from now, one year from now, two years from now, how long ever it takes for me to come up to speed. The world is not going to end if I report a little less on the front end while I'm not sure of myself than if I report more. What was that first question like? Do you remember? No. You don't? No. No. It's, I, I, I can only imagine. It must have been petrifying. Well, I, I asked a first question at a news conference that turned out to be a really stupid question. My first, my first question of the president at a news conference really was a stupid question because <clears throat> it was based on information I didn't have and should have and a reading of the larger situation. There was an accurate reading. It just didn't jibe with facts. Uh, my first question at a, at a major presidential news conference was to ask President Reagan, who was president at the time, um, what would happen under certain <coughs> financial circumstances? I asked him about mortgage interest rates because they were sky high at the time and if they were ever gonna come down. And he said, well, I can't do anything about interest rates. And he was right. You know, I, I, I was not, and I wasn't trying to suggest that he could do something direct, but that could there be some government activity that would send signals to the markets, quote unquote, which government does all the time. But instead, I just felt like an idiot because I felt that my question was premised on, well, what are you, the president, going to do about mortgage rates? Well, the president doesn't have any responsibility for mortgage rates. Zero. So that's the Fed. Do you remember on the marketplace on the marketplace in the marketplace? Exactly. Do you, do you remember those failed questions more than you remember the great questions or do you remember both of them? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I, I probably remember both. Um, the failed questions. Uh, I, look, it's like any great, any experience you remember the outliers, the intense pain or the intense pleasure, you know, the intense, disincentive, go to jail, the intense incentive, get a $100,000 bonus. Um, so I remember, I remember those things. It's some of the stuff in between that like, how did that work again? <laughs> what, 
What was it like? Because when you started with the White House, you were kind of, you were growing up with CNN though too, right? No, actually when I started with the White House, it was, it was, it was in the, it's such the infancy of CNN that I was not even aware of it. I didn't, you know, I started in the White House in 1982 and CNN was still a barely a squint in the eye of, of, of Ted Turner. In 82, and then they were around in 84, right? Was um, Well, let's see. I started, at, CNN went on the air in 80. I joined CNN in 82. Okay, okay, right. I then left 10 years later in 11. 11, yeah. Um, and and it was just a, it was just a different place. It was a, journalism was in a different place. CNN was in a different place. It was, um, yeah. But it was it was the beginning of a lot of what we see now, though, right? I mean, going to going to more going to a, a strictly news format and yeah, but it was a, it was a very very different time, Chris, because you know twenty four seven cable television was a novelty. A lot of people didn't think it was going to succeed. People told Teddy was out of his mind. This is chicken noodle news. They called it all kinds of little disparaging names, uh, and it wasn't until you know, we got farther down the line. Let's see, the country really was being cabled in a major way in 85, 86, 87. Okay. And those were just gigantic growth years for, for Turner and for, for, for the news channel because people could get it. Um, but it was nothing like the Gulf War and that kind of thing that drove a big story through it and people wanted to get that. Um, or like today when cable is a dominant force in the news business, sometimes not a very positive one, I think, but has a lot of company on the dial. There's a lot of, you know, attitude driven talk shows essentially than what CNN is doing. Right, exactly. And so, so you were at CNN and then, and, and had a variety of different roles at CNN where, White House correspondent, and then and then uh, anchor, and then also uh, bureau chief. And did 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 you look at one and say this is this is really kind of who I am at, in this entity, or or was each kind of intriguing, or? Um. I mean, each stop along the way offered its own challenges and rewards. Right. Uh, they were all very different. Being a White House correspondent was incredibly demanding because you were just always on. And if they bomb something in the middle of the night, off you go. Being an anchor gave me an opportunity to connect with an audience in different ways, ways that I hadn't done. Being the bureau chief gave me an opportunity to lead. And um, so they were all very distinct. They all dealt with the news. They all dealt with journalism, but they dealt with it at different levels. And that's what made it interesting to me, really interesting, because I could pursue it at different levels. So I was, you know, as I say, we were there in the, in the early days of chicken noodle news. And that was the other thing that was exciting is no one expected CNN to, to succeed. And so to be out there on the farm team, to be out there, you know, trying to, 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 to make a good, turn a good idea into a sustainable business, um, was very challenging and, and, and a lot of fun. 
Exactly. I would imagine it really was. And, and it, it, it's a personal journey as well, right? As, as you go through, I mean, to an, a, a profession that you hadn't necessarily chosen, but you go through that, that personal journey. And do you have do you have time as you're in the midst of it to be able to reflect or is it just so intense that, that you really don't? Well, at CNN, it was very intense. It was, you know, these, these are 20, near 24 seven jobs. And so to really have the time to step back and reflect and think and clear your brain and all that, that was really hard. And I highly recommend it no matter where people are. You've got to have that separation. You've got to have that space to kind of spread your, your brain wings and, 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 and take on a little air. CNN went in phases. Um, the early phase was very tough. And then we went into a kind of a multi-year, slightly more relaxed phase. Ted Turner didn't care about ratings. If you asked him about ratings, he'd yell at you. What do you ask me about ratings for? I don't care about ratings. Um, and that, that was quite true. Uh, Fox and MSNBC went on the air in 96. That's when things started really changing big time because not only could people watch print, but they could actually watch television, CNN television to television. So that trans translated into a further loss. The bottom didn't fall out, which a lot of people warned, but it wasn't good. It wasn't, it wasn't healthy. So, you know, What's ahead now, it's hard to say. I think the biggest crisis in journalism is not at any of the levels that people would think of automatically, meaning NBC or CBS and ABC and CNN and all the rest. The, the, the biggest challenge and problem in journalism now, it's what hap what's happening in small towns and in communities and is there local journalism left? Are there people there who will sit on the boards and various other things of their community and bring their incredible and, and, and sort of unknown sense of um, what's going on in the world and ability to synthesize information and boil it down very quickly, will that get put to good use? Wow, okay, so, so it really is, the, you're saying it's, it's the local, it's losing the local that is, that is the biggest challenge? Yeah, the biggest, without any question, the biggest hit in terms of jobs and lost media and implications is at the local level. The Des Moines Register, the St. Petersburg Times, the um, Tribune, the uh, Salt Lake City Tribune, mm -hmm. all of them have been pummeled, pummeled by the collapse in ad revenue. You know, the old, the old newspaper, you'll remember this, maybe, <laughs> You're a young guy. You don't. You didn't read newspapers. You've been on the iPhone your whole life. Um, but the the early news, you know, the the newspapers of not that very many years ago, mostly local, made their money off of something called classified ads. Right. So it was really in the late '90s that we started seeing this big change. These other networks came along for cable. Um, broadband was up. It wasn't very predictable. It certainly wasn't everywhere. It wasn't over smartphones in the first few years, but everybody was anticipating that right from the get-go and it happened. And, and, and I would imagine it's, it's daunting to be in the middle of that. Is that some of what pushed you to move to education or how did, how did you end up making that move? I... <laughs> When I was in college, I had a college professor 
Um, and we had a big, long talk one night, one afternoon. And he said, you know what? What's so interesting for me was that I've had two separate careers. He worked in one place and then he switched and went into teaching. That's what I did. I started in media and then I made the decision to leave media and go into teaching and do other things while I'm in teaching. And that's what I've done ever since. But I think it gives you a chance to grow your brain, to have a second career or love or passion or must do that isn't frontal lobe is a really good thing because you rise to that occasion. I haven't seen anybody fail from it, but you rise to that occasion. Do you feel that you have a different skill set, a different knowledge by virtue of having been in the marketplace and then moving into education? Yes, I do feel I have a different perspective. I do feel, feel that what I learned on the front lines, I've been able to bring into a classroom. And, and more than a classroom, the, 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 the place I occupy is really the threshold to the future. I look at students as, and especially their college years, as threshold years. And as they graduate, they reshape the future, whether it's the marketing trends and clothes and the food they buy, whether it's by populating some of the places as you know, big time jobs open up and there's accountability. And I did that certainly. I mean, I certainly evolved in my various iterations, um, but, yeah, I think it's 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 uh, it's a it's a difficult time, Chris, but it's a really interesting time for students because you don't have the I'm going to put on a suit. The people from IBM are coming tomorrow. They're having a job fair. We're all going to line up. They're going to hire 27 interns. That's not how it works anymore. They may still do that to some extent, but. They're also going to hire great people on the street. There's going to be some technologist who's going to dazzle them and they're going to offer them a job. You know, there's some really interesting things here. So do you see a different perspective in terms of the students? Then, you know, are, are the students coming into it and looking for knowledge in a different way than, than they would have 10 years ago, 20 years ago? I mean, to go to your IBM kind of analogy. Yeah, I, you know, I want to say I think so, but I don't have the data to prove it. And I wasn't around 25 years ago to talk to students then. But in just a few years, I've seen them get more serious about the things they want to research and more things that are serious that they are researching. So I think that, I think that there is more of a complexity um, embrace rather than a comp complexity illusion uh, that we had before where oh, I can't do it, make it go away. It's too complicated, it's making my head hurt too. Now, I wanna figure this out and I, let me get my friend Claire over here and we'll, she'll tell you. And, and is that, are students, I mean, in some ways it sounds like you're saying that students are more empowered to feel like they can affect the change at a younger age, at an earlier point in their career. Is, is that some of what you're saying or not? No, I think so. I think, I think you, uh, I mean, I, I, people can do a lot of things in their early in their career or late in their career. They are unbounded today by border and by travel and by airplanes and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I think that, I think there's a lot of, I think that I don't think, I know there is a huge amount of freedom here in, in how students can rally to this if they're interested in it 
what's the flip side of that? I mean, there's a there's a, a lot of freedom, but then there's there's also there, there has to be a challenge on the educational side, a challenge for the present the present students. Is is that true as well? What do you consider the challenge? Well, yes. I mean, if you're going to go into journalism and you get it wrong, it's pretty catastrophic. And everybody gets it wrong on a paper. That's why a paper comes back C plus and it's filled with red marks. Some of it may feel subjective, but there's actually a way of grading. There's also an, a way of grading journalism. There's a way of grading storytelling. Now students go out there and they're not prepared for that world. And they've got some illusory rose, rose you know, colored glasses on and everything's gonna be great. They'll be disappointed. They'll be very disappointed. And I think, you know, are people going to wait for the scandal the way they have in the past? No, I don't think so. I don't think these, these ski organizations can because they're told that they're going to have to shut down if there's, you know, not kosher activity there. And I'm not saying that students are part of that or anything like that. I'm, I'm not suggesting that. But I think there are higher levels of accountability in, in the world generally, but certainly in higher education. Um, and that that skittishness in a number of different ways can affect a student's on-campus experience, even if they are a ex-campus correspondent. Wow. And, and combining, you also have an interest in, in combining some of the, the more traditional media, if I'm getting this correct, with your project forward, with, with some of the so some of the modern media, the emerging media and the conventional media. Uh, yeah. What exactly does that mean with regard to the environment, right? Well, yeah. Well, what it means is that um, if a student wants to write a text story or tell a video story, fine, they can do that. We encourage them to do that. But if a student wants to go figure out how to create a scene, and play a guitar by the metro station and have a buddy come up with a with a saxophone case for people to throw their quarters in. And that other person is gonna chronicle people coming and going and the things they're saying so that you can present a slice of life out of that. Um, I'm really interested in very creative reporting, getting out there, being part of the story, telling a genuine story, uh, you know, which is a search, it's a journey. Um, so I'm not worried that CNN is going to abandon the news. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about the, the CNN may go for curtains in every car, but they're not going to, they're not going to ban them. Uh, and that person in whoever is trying to do a story in a different way, um, hopefully not at CNN. Well, I hope they don't get listened to so much, but I mean, if it's, if it's irresponsible, but back to my point about playing the guitar, <laughs> you know, I, I, I challenge students. I will say to students, I would rather in reporting this story and telling this story, I would rather see you fail creatively than pass conservatively. I want students, I, I work with students to push their envelope, their storytelling envelope. How could you tell a story with more passion or with more commitment? you know, connection or with a more unpredictable character while keeping the story arc. So the story arc might be how the District of Columbia, where we're located, is encouraging people to buy electric vehicles. And you might go out with the, with the installer who's putting in the plugs in different houses and look at the day in the life of an installer. It could be a 
Netflix comedy for all I care. But along the way, you're gonna embed information so that people learn about the installer's life. They learn what that electricity can do. They learn about the power of electric vehicles and, and how, it, how good they are. And um, so the creative storytelling, and I'm not giving good examples, but creative storytelling is more important today than ever before, flat out, full stop, because there's so much choice for the, for the viewer or the reader. And with that much choice, you got to hook them. You got to figure out what the reader cares about so that you can have an audience. How much, how much does it go? How much goes into creating those stories? You know, like how much, how much of the conventional do you have to then build the creative on top of the conventional in order to, in order to have the, the you know, the recognizability of a story? and the power of a story? Well, it's a really good, it's a really interesting um, question because, the, you know, and I, I'm like everybody in the world of COVID, I'm discovering every darn program on Netflix <laughs> and streaming channels. And there's some very interesting and very unusual storytelling. Go over to YouTube and see what people are doing on their own. There's a whole channel just on fixing up you know, converting vans so people can have a home on wheels and drive across the country. So storytelling can really range very broadly. It can go from the conventional, you know, chronological timeline to the, to the three act play to the one act, you know, in the van. So what makes it interesting? Um, my little hero's journey that I talk to students about and talk to others about is quite simple and any great story, and this is gonna be from the Bible to Superman to Netflix, find a compelling character. What makes Chris Waddell a compelling character? There are a lot of things in your life that make you a compelling character. The odds that you're up against, the experience that you've had, the strength of your character makes you compelling. Step one, compelling character. Step two, overcoming obstacles. Superman is always up against the bad guy and the bad guy always has kryptonite. <laughs> and we don't know whether this time it's going to kill Superman. So Superman is always trying to figure out how to capture the bad guy, how to avoid the kryptonite, how to survive this. Are you going to get to the top of your mountain? We don't know. We're going on that journey with you. That's the kryptonite that's out there. Are you going to make it? That's part of a story. So compelling character, overcoming those obstacles and achieving that worthy outcome. What is the worthy outcome? What does the hero do if the hero succeeds? Who does she save? Who does he prevail over? What, what, do, what do people fix? So I can tell a story about a scientist doing research in the lab. What makes the scientist interesting? Why do they care about climate change? Or why do they care about the neurons in my brain that may or may not let me live a hundred years with a memory? Why, where's that come from? That makes them compelling. I'm interested in them as a person. What are they trying to figure out? They're trying to figure out how I can live a hundred years and still have memory. But what are the obstacles in the way? What are the experiments that go wrong? What are the limitations on what they're trying to do? What are, you know, how many people have they worked with who 
fall out of the experiment or, 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 or die along the way or whatever it is. That's an interesting story because we all want to know whether we can make it to 100 with our memories. Right, exactly. And the thing is that we also, when, when we as the audience see stories, we, we, we sometimes, some stories work for us and some stories don't. And sometimes when we're missing that, those conventional steps, we, we miss we miss the story. Right. So I was watching, I mentioned, I mentioned you, the YouTube and um, my daughter and her partner are working up a, a van to go across the country. And so we have these, this YouTube stuff on all the time. And I'm watching all these videos about people converting their vans. And it's really cool. Some of them really work. Why do they work? Because there's something interesting about the person who's telling me the story about how, how they put their van together and something that didn't happen right. And then a, and the bottom fell out of the van, but don't worry, we didn't fall off the cliff. We got ourselves back together and we did it. That's just interesting. It's a good story, compelling character, obstacle, outcome. Others are kind of flat. They're kind of boring. Someone just speaking. So I think to anybody who's thinking about telling a story, whether it's a joke at the table at dinner or, a, or seriously writing a novel, Having, having the understanding that those basic elements of, of, of character and detail and that sort of core tension at the heart of any really good story so that you care, like there's a little suspense here. How's it gonna turn out? Right. Um, those are really important things. I, I'm a gigantic fan. I love Schitt's Creek. I don't know if you watch that show, but I love it. And, and one of the reasons is that the characters were so richly developed. All the characters, they were all quirky. You like cared about, I've never watched a television show, I think, where I cared so much and I had such a strong sense of the character, of so many different characters. Because they were all so distinct. Exactly, well. yeah, yeah. But then and they worked. They, and, and they, and they, they, they bounced into one another and they, they, that, they had failures and setbacks or near setbacks. The whole thing is built on setback, right? The rich family that loses everything. It's like the Beverly Hillbillies moves to a motel. Only it wasn't the Beverly Hillbillies, it was the Beverly Millionaires. <laughs> it was in reverse, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you saw the motivation there. Yes. And, and going back to the van, the, the van thing, you probably, prior to your daughter and her partner, getting involved in the van journey, you, you probably would not have been all that interested in watching a story about a van, about a van conversion. Right. Well, and to, and to bring it, to sort of bring it home, exactly. But the compelling character is my daughter because she's my daughter, which makes her compelling. So I care about her. I mean, that's the, if you're thinking about writing, you know, crafting a story, how do you make the, the, the reader or the viewer or the listener of that story care about a character? That's a whole separate conversation that you and I could have. But it's a, it's a, and it's a very interesting thing. And it applies, by the way, not just to, to, to fiction. Politicians who are successful, good politicians are storytellers. All right. Mm -hmm. They will bore me to tears about talking about the Affordable Care Act. But I did a I did a town hall one time a few years ago and a woman stood up. She had a question for the panel in the front of the room and she started telling this story that was unbelievable about her child who was born with a 
a serious heart defect and had multiple surgeries but you know in in his first years of life and by the time he was 4 years old he had exhausted his lifetime benefit in his in the insurance plan that they were rolled up in well guess what purely coincidentally one of the panelists was the ceo of the insurance company we had a very dramatic moment there yes um but you cared about that character cuz everybody can relate to a mother everybody can relate to a 4-year-old child everybody can go can you, you have empathy when you think oh my god a, a, a child is born through no fault of its own with a with a terrible problem with his heart and has multiple surgeries and then you have the outrage what by 4 years old he's exhausted his lifetime life insurance and the life insurance or the health insurance and the health insurance company saying sorry you don't get any more so making people care relate to those characters and, is, and how did how did that one turn out how did that <laughs> that conversation See, turn out ceo very 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 smartly said um, ma'am let's have a conversation after this let me see what i can do for you and they figured it out what why why do we need story what's what's the big need for it i mean you're talking about stories yeah. we remember through story our traditions are passed down through story native cultures pass stories down pass pass their cultural traditions down through story we mythologize through story characters become enduring models mentors they have messages the bible is all stories so uh i i think that what we realize too in a world where we're saturated by media saturated by information that it's the good story that we'll remember not the fact not the not the data point in most cases as a journalist and as somebody who's 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 covered politics i i said i've said this before hillary clinton might have been president in 2016 if she'd been a better storyteller and at the end of the day whatever people may think of donald trump his narrative resonated with people because it resonated with their lives and that was a story of loss that your job had gone away that your community was less secure that you were feeling less comfortable with what was happening in the world around you so stories are very 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 powerful and whether it's a corporate story a personal story a political story a mythological story stories well told are what we remember hey did you hear did you see did you read that piece about this 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 you know 100 year old guy in london who was walking around in circles to raise money for the national you know the national health over there every and you know he died recently but you probably saw it, but everybody heard about him and they knew that he was a a veteran and all the rest so that that has power that has incredible power Do stories need to be personal in order to be impactful? What do you mean personal? So personal so like you're talking about like your van, your connection to the vans. You're connected to the vans as a result of being connected to your daughter, right? So it makes it it makes it a more personal story. Uh but some of these things, some of these these legends and myths and 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 other things do do we do we take our connection from 
these stories because they either impact us or they're speaking about us? Or can we just appreciate a story for the sake of a story? Oh, I think both. Uh, I think, I think um, effective stories speak to us somehow. All right, you and I are never gonna be King Lear. Okay, I, you know, you're a good guy, but you're probably not gonna sit on a throne someday. Uh, I'm not gonna sit on a throne someday. Uh, but, you know, hundreds of years later, we still go to Shakespeare. Uh, but, so, but there's something there in Cuban foibles that speaks to us. What made Hamilton such a hit? Um, it was the very good story. It's been around for a long time. Hamilton's story has been around. But in the way it was presented was creative and compelling and the music spoke to us. It resonated with us on a number of levels. So no, I, while I think there's one way into a story is to, and I've done this when I write news stories actually, sometimes I will deliberately try to find something, a line, a thread, a reality that I think is going to mirror the experience of the viewer because that's one way in. But there are other times when I'll try to do a story um, that will just be so compelling and it doesn't necessarily relate to the viewer in quite that way. Uh, a good example, we have a crisis at our border. We've had a crisis at our border for a long time. Always, always, always the compelling story is about the child. The child who's being trafficked, the child who's being dragged along by parents because all the, the parents just want a better life for the child, the child who's been abandoned, the child who is the hope of the future. That may or may not speak to people, but people, as I've said before, relate to children because they've had them, they've been one. <laughs> children represent innocence and the future and all those things. So I think you can speak to someone in a story. You can connect something that is sort of universal, but you can also speak with someone about something that is their own personal experience. Uh, have you seen the movie the Sound of Metal. I have not, no. Watch it, it's brilliant. Um, it's a story about a drummer um, who because of the, the noise loses his hearing and, and has to deal with his deafness and has to deal with the frustrations and the anger and, and learn about the deaf community. And then he has to decide um, whether he's gonna have cochlear implants and try to overcome and put his deafness aside or embrace that. Which world will he be in? Can he be in both? It is a really powerful story. Well, I, I, now I've known people who have deafness and, and so I, and disabilities, so I relate on that level. But the story by itself is, 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 you know, even if I didn't have that experience and I know a lot of people who watch it and they relate to it, they don't, they don't, they don't need to see themselves in it. To, to feel the power of that story because the character is so compelling, the obstacles are so clear, and the outcome is he just wants to fit in someplace. He wants to get on with his life, and what will that mean? Right, which is ultimately, which is fairly universal, right? We just want to fit in. And But he's a drummer, and he's young, and he's a rock, you know, he, he's, he, it, it, it's like, this is not who you would expect to see here. Right. It, it's riveting from the moment it opens. Interesting, interesting. And so 
So with the with the students or with the with the people at the uh, at the Planet Forward, with the students of the Planet Forward project as well, with the creative storytelling, with the idea of of trying to trying to help tell a story, how how are you able to help kind of hold their hand along the way? Uh, you know, to to help them one to you know to to to, to be able to to be able to find their voice. To be able to find their arc, to be able to, to to find their unique sense of approach to a problem, which which is a, a tremendous gift. But I but I'd imagine it's a hard thing because it's probably relatively individual as well. Well, our the Planet Forward project is all about the is meant to be framed around ideas and innovations to move the planet forward. It's meant to be stories that offer solutions and hope that highlight breakthrough and discovery. Uh, you know, we live on a planet that by the time today's college students come back for their 25th college reunion, we'll have nearly 11 billion people on it. The day I was born, there were 2.7 billion people on the planet. So think about that. We've gone from 2.7 billion to nearly 11 billion, presumably that I'm presuming that I'm around when they go back for their 25th reunion, which I hope to be, uh, in one lifetime. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Climate change is real, and we see it. I just did an interview with the mayor of Phoenix because she's trying to make Phoenix the hottest big city in America a heat ready city. They had 145 days last year over 100 degrees, breaking records. Wow. So this generation understands that their biggest generational challenge will be the earth they inhabit. Population, climate change, plastic pollution, you name it. But they can't give up hope because innovation and inspiration and invention are so much a part of the human spirit, we can do this. And so that's what we try to do with Planet Forward. So what we tell them is find a great character. It's a scientist, it's a business person, it's someone inventing a way to, to consume plastic or, or, or defeat methane gas or whatever it is. Somebody, we had a story that was done by somebody with a guy who was running a bar in Amsterdam or some crazy place like that, where the, where the dance floor actually moved. And when it moved, it generated electricity so people could char charge their phones from the dance floor. It's just cool. It's just like, what, are you kidding? Uh, but some of these are actually scalable ideas that can really make a difference. That's what we want students to find, to understand, and to tell stories about. But one of the challenges, I mean, you talk about the, the climate as the challenge, but then the second challenge is that the climate isn't an issue for a large part of the population. How, 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 how can they help reach those people, do they have to reach those people? How does that work? Well, I would say that the climate is an issue for everybody on the planet, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. Well, that's I'm saying that the people who don't acknowledge it, right? And that's how you reach them. Is through story. Through story. So we had a, an event and a story around a farmer, fourth generation farmer. And he came and he talked about how since the farm has been in his family, the rains have changed. 
and what used to be you know longer gentler soaking rains in the spring have become more torrential and they were starting to have a real problem with topsoil runoff and they so what they did on the farm is they rebermed the property and they put in new a whole new drainage system he never uttered the word climate change or the words climate change he just talked about what they'd done this kind of innovative drainage system to deal with changing temperature, changing weather conditions and the rains. We had a st students do a story about the uh, sea level rise in Miami and, and, and sunny day flooding. This is new, this didn't happen before. And solutions that people have come up with. So, you know, in some cases, people will take on climate change and talk about it directly. In other cases, and this is how you get to some others, you, you, you just kind of observe what's happening and that you have to do something about it. I think, Chris, with respect to climate change, the, the, what polls show is the overwhelming majority of the public acknowledges that it's happening and a strong majority now acknowledges that it's human-induced, human-caused. So the stories now need to connect to what can we do about it? And for those who are still doubters, you know, what is it and, 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 and how do we address it? Told by people they trust, whether that's a farmer or a business person. One farmer we talked to was also, uh, you know, and he said he, he was kind of a little bit of an anomaly, but he led one of the conservation groups in his state. So, you know, trusted sources are a very important part of, of this kind of storytelling if you're trying to persuade someone. So we see the same thing with vaccine hesitancy. The ad that had the presidents in it kind of fell flat. A bunch of presidents, former presidents telling you to get your shots, isn't gonna do it. A doctor you know and trust, a preacher you know and trust, a neighbor you know and trust, that's gonna make a difference. And it's the same thing with this kind of storytelling. And it was the same thing for you when you were a correspondent as well, right? That you had to bring in an expert in order to, in order to tell that story. Yeah. When I was doing our Sunday show, we always had, <laughs> we, we, when we booked the show, we had, a, we had a, a seat. We didn't say this publicly. We didn't say this for the show. But when we were behind the scenes booking it, we had a seat we called the truth teller. Who's going to be the truth teller? I'll have a Republican and a Democrat. They're both going to spin. <laughs> they're both going to say what they need to say. That's okay. Their job is to persuade. And, but as a result, they're going to draw the facts selectively. Who will, who will be the third guest on the show who's going to say, well, no, that's not exactly how it works, Senator. And they know from experience. So that could have been a citizen, a business person, a professor. And this is, you know, before we decided that everybody had a point of view, so. I'm not sure that anybody is without some bias. Well, I guess that that, that is the world changing and maybe, maybe it is changing and maybe it's not. I mean, I guess that's, that's probably, it's more prevalent or it's least, at least louder now right. than, it was, than it was before. Well, Frank, this has been absolutely wonderful. I just, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, but even more, I appreciate you taking the time to write your book, book about about asking more and how how we can you know connect with the people in our communities how we can gain information how we can be strategic how we can bridge gaps and uh, and thank you for 
for doing what you're doing. Thank you what you're doing with, for what you're doing with uh, with Planet Forward. And I, I, well, I should ask, I guess. I mean, I, I was going to get you out on this, but but I was looking. I'm interested to know what strategic initiatives, what the director of strategic initiatives at George Washington University is is going to do, and and it's in the in the media and public affairs department. So what 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 will you do? <laughs> well, we have a whole bunch of, so my Planet Forward project will be one of the strategic initiatives that I will pursue. We have several other projects. We have an Institute for Data Democracy and Politics now, which focuses on disinformation, where it's coming from, what harm takes place and, and is happening across social media platforms and what the social media platforms can and should do about it, where the regulation should be. So I'll be working more on that, I'm sure. Uh, we have a number of other projects that, that we've developed that I will help to, to, to nurture. Speaking of questions, we have something I started a few years ago at the university called the Conversation Series, and where I sit down with people and I engage with them on stage when we can be in a room and on stage. Uh, and I'll be doing that. In fact, I've got uh, the Planet Forward Summit uh, will be taking place uh, in a bit here, and and um, that's where I'm going to be engaging people. I'm, you know, I, I I've had a I'm very lucky. I've had a wonderful career or couple of careers doing different things, but part of it is the opportunity to engage so many people and ask them these questions. And I look forward to doing more of that. And I will, whether it's through the Planet Forward Project or otherwise, for the benefit of the students and for the benefit of, of, a, of the wider community. So I, I look forward to doing that. Learning and listening like you, what you're doing, living it, as you say, um, is, is is important and it provides ideas and information and contrast and comparison and inspiration for others. And that, if we can do just a little bit of that, it's just a, it's a beautiful contribution that, that we can make. And so it's that's, yeah. I hope a little bit of what I can do, which is what you do, so. Well, I'm, I'm certainly trying to follow in your footsteps as best I can and I appreciate all of what you're doing, and also what what I think is so cool is seeing how many different how you're utilizing both careers and being able to pull from from different places to create that impact and and to create a learning environment, probably both up and down, uh, which is what I mean. It's what we hope for, right? It's what we hope for as human beings as we continue on this on this hero's journey, because we're all living our hero's journey, our, our independent one, right? Yeah, well, if we can each be a little bit of a hero in our own lives, that would be a good thing. We all try. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with all of the, all of the projects. I hope to be able to join you for the summit. I'm assuming that that is online. The the online. Summit. Yes. Yeah. April 9th, and if you go to planetforward.org, if anybody's interested, planetforward.org, they'll see all the information there and they can sign up, register and be part of it. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, to, our, to our guests, thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming on this journey with us, with, with Frank and with me. And, and if you like what we're doing, please tell your friends, subscribe, Spotify, Apple Podcasts on YouTube. Go ahead and, and like us, subscribe and, and follow and tell your friends, please. I really appreciate it. And we'll look forward to more 
interesting people like Frank, experts in the experience of being human. So thank you for being an expert in the experience of being human, Frank. Take care, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.